morning we have a, a lot to cover. We're going to cover half of Acts chapter 6, all of Acts chapter 7, and be finished by noon, give or take 30, 45 minutes. Um, so before we start, let's open with a word of prayer. Our Father, we love you today, and God, you are great and awesome, and you are worthy of our praise and worthy of our devotion. We gather this time to study your word, to learn more about you and how we ought to live. Lord, we we want to take your word and apply it to our lives. We want to see your word be living and powerful, to be active in our hearts, to change us, to challenge us, to transform us, so that we could be more like Jesus. God, as we look at your word today, let your spirit come and open our hearts and minds, that we would behold wondrous things out of your word, and that God, through it, we would be inspired, and we would be challenged, and, and we would just be changed so that we could be more like Jesus. Fill me today with your Holy Spirit that I could speak your words and your ways and that I could glorify you in all that I say and all that I do. Help me to, to not be a hindrance in any way to what you want spoken and what we want what you want us to learn in this passage today. Uh, just guide and direct, I ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Let me ask you a question. What would you be willing to die for? I've been thinking about that question for quite a while. It started when I watched a movie called 300. It's about the 300 Spartan soldiers that fought the Battle of Thermopylae. And in the battle, of course, they're greatly outnumbered by the Persian army. There's millions of Persian soldiers, 300 Spartan soldiers. And in one point in the movie, they're climbing up on a mountain doing some recon, looking at just the vast army below them. And one of the Spartans, he starts laughing, and a, a Greek soldier that's with him says, What is wrong with you? Are you crazy? And he says, No. He says, We Spartans look for a glorious death. And yet I have, I have yet to find one in battle that could give me this glorious death. And perhaps in that many, there is one down there that could. And I was struck by that. Because for the Spartans, right, their goal in life wasn't to be safe. To live to a ripe old age and to pass peacefully into death as they slept at night. Now, their goal was to live a life of courage and honor and devotion to Sparta and die for what they believed in. And I thought, man, that is just a, an amazing thing. And as I thought about that, one of the things I, I realize and I think about is, while I, I'm not a Spartan, the idea of the glorious death of the Spartan appeals much more to me than a life of safety and ease and dying peacefully in my sleep and never really doing much with my life. But that does bring up the question. I mean, what, what would we die for? I mean, there are plenty of things that are obviously not worth dying for. We went... In June, and I, we upgraded our cell phones, and I finally got a smartphone, which I've wanted for a while, and I like it. It's pretty amazing. Um, I'm pretty sure I could launch the space shuttle with it if I tried, but I haven't figured out how to do that yet. But if somebody were to come and hold a gun to my head and say, give me your phone, or I'm going to blow your brains out, me and that phone would part company pretty quick. But I use my laptop for everything. I rarely go away overnight that I don't take my laptop with me. Uh, in fact, the girls, anytime they try to imitate me, they first start by sitting behind the computer so they can do whatever it is I would do as I sit behind the computer. But again, if somebody were to hold a gun and say, give me your laptop or I'm going to kill you, I would give them the laptop. It is replaceable. Or even my car. You know, we, Kelly and I watched a movie where some guy was doing a, a, trying to hijack a car and the, the lady fought back and he killed her. And I told Kelly, I said, don't ever do that. Just a vehicle. Let them take it. We'll get something else or we'll walk. It'll be okay. But, but don't die for something like a car. But there are also, we would all say there are things that we would die for. As an infantry soldier, we were trained to, to kill and to die for our country. And while I never went to war, to the best I know, I think I would have, I would have done either one without hesitation. As a dad would die to protect my daughters for sure as a husband i would die to protect my wife and i'm sure we would all have things probably every spouse would die for their spouse every parent would die for their parent and so we have these things that we would die for and things that we know are not worth dying for 
But let me ask, what about Jesus? Would we die for Jesus? Would we say that he is worth dying for? Would we be willing to die because of our devotion to Jesus? Now that question came into my mind at church camp. Church camp, our evangelist bailed on us on Wednesday night, and so me and two other guys split the preaching. And we came up with an idea to do a theme on courage. And we went through and did examples of men in the Bible that had courage and were challenging the kids to be courageous. We, we looked at Joshua being told to be courageous to lead the children of Israel into the promised land. We looked at David having the courage to stand before Goliath. Elijah having the courage to stand before the prophets on Mount Carmel. Daniel and the three Hebrew children, or probably teenage boys, having the, the courage to say we won't eat the king's food. The three Hebrew men at this point having the courage to say we won't bow before Nebuchadnezzar's idol. Daniel having the courage to pray despite the king's edict that you could not pray to any god but Darius. Uh, and, and Stephen and his courage in the book of Acts. And as we went through, I noticed there was something different about Stephen's story than it was in the rest. All showed courage. All showed a devotion to their God. But Stephen's story turned out vastly different than theirs did. Joshua was courageous, devoted. He led the army. He became known as one of the great leaders of the Bible. Conquered the promised land. David showed courage and devotion and killed Goliath and became one of the greatest kings Israel ever knew. Elijah showed courage and devotion. And God sent fire down from heaven. Consumed the sacrifice and he was known as one of the greatest prophets of the Old Testament. Daniel and Hananiah, Azariah, and Mishael, or Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego showed courage and devotion and did not eat the portion of the king's food. And they were promoted to places of honor in the kingdom. Same three boys refused to bow to Nebuchadnezzar's idol. And, and while they were thrown in the flaming fiery furnace, they were spared. And they walked out not even smelling of smoke, and they were also promoted places of honor. Daniel prayed to God despite the king's edict. Courage, devotion to his God was thrown into the lion's den. But the lions did not hurt him. He was taken out. He was also, the Bible says, he prospered greatly under the next two kings. Then there's Stephen's story. Stephen showed the same Level of devotion, the same kind of courage, the same amount of faith. But he died. And if you're familiar with the story, and we'll look at it in depth, but he, he's preaching the gospel. And that hacks people off. And so they bring him before a council. And they ask him if what these charges against him are true. And Stephen, rather than try to defend himself, he launches into a history lesson about how God had helped Israel. And in the end, after being courageous and standing for God, they took him out and they stoned him to death. He died despite his courage, despite his devotion, despite his faith. And I wonder... Would I do that? I mean, and I wonder what what caused him. I mean, it, we'll see as we get into it. I think there were opportunities for Stephen to to skate and to save his life. I don't think his death was certain until the last parts of the story. But he didn't back down, and he didn't shut up, and he died. For his devotion to Jesus. I mean, what would, what would cause someone to do something like that? Well, that's what we're going to look at today. So open your Bible to Acts chapter 6 and verse 8. 
It's page 835 in your pew Bibles. And we're just I'm not going to have you stand and read it because it's way too much to do all that. We're just going to kind of walk through it. And the title of the message today is, is a costly devotion. Now, at the time we're picking up in the book of Acts, the church has growing and it's facing persecution. At first, the persecution is primarily directed at the apostles. But now the church has grown to the point that so many people are out preaching the gospel that the persecution is spreading to, well, more regular people, more people who are not the apostles. And that's what we pick up with Stephen. Look at what it says in verse 8. And Stephen, full of faith and power, did great wonders and signs among the people. Then there arose some from what is called the synagogue of freedmen, Cyrenians, Alexandrians, and those from Sicilia and Asia, disputing with Stephen. And they were not able to resist the wisdom and the spirit by which he spoke. And, and here we see what gets him into trouble. Right Here's where, where Stephen's problem comes. He's preaching the gospel. And he's preaching the gospel and he's telling them about Jesus. And, and some Jews are trying to resist it. They're trying to, to push back against it and saying Jesus was not the Messiah. And so what we read here is that they began to argue with him. And they tried to say, no, no, Jesus, the Messiah wouldn't be like this. The Messiah wouldn't be like that. And Stephen would counter by saying, no, he is this. And the scripture says this. And, and he was so knowledgeable of the Bible, so faithful to the gospel that they were not able to resist him. They could not argue with what he said. He, he basically, he shut them up at each and every instance. And he was able to prove from scripture that Jesus was the Messiah they had been waiting for. And they didn't like it. And so look at what they did. And then they secretly induced men saying, induced men to say, we have heard him speak blasphemous words against Moses and God. And they stirred up the people and the elders and the scribes and they came upon him and seized him and they took him to the council. And they also set up false witnesses who said, this man does not seek to speak blasphemous words against the holy place, this holy place and against the law. For we heard him say that Jesus of Nazareth will destroy this place. And change the customs which Moses delivered to us. Now, it's important that we notice what happens here. Right? Because at times, we tend to give the religious leaders more credit than they deserve. Well, they just had a different understanding of Scripture and they were being passionate for God's glory. No. No, they weren't. Right? One, they couldn't, argue against, they couldn't argue against Stephen's wisdom. They, could, they recognized from what he said that he was right. But that didn't matter. Secondly, we see that they went out and secretly induced men to say, to, to lie. Right? A passion for God's glory was not the issue at hand. They, they were, the, the God's glory was far from their minds. They did not care about God. They did not care about the temple. They did not care about the law. Right? The gospel was messing up their lives. But as religious leaders, they were losing influence as people converted to Christianity. They were losing money as people stopped bringing to the temple. They were losing their age-old traditions. The gospel was messing up the religionist life. And they didn't like it. And so they were willing to do anything they could to shut him up, to set him down. So they brought these bogus charges against him. And as they bring these bogus charges against him, we see in chapter 7 and verse 1 that the high priest, man, he is, so he is before the, the high council. Right? He is standing before the supreme court of the Jewish religious world. And they had the power of death and life in their hands. Their decision could settle his future. Are these things so? And Stephen launches into a history lesson. He doesn't try to defend himself in any way. Instead, he launches into a history lesson. Which these guys all knew. They were well aware of the history of the Jewish nation. They were well aware of all that had happened to bring them to the place that they were. But still, that's what Stephen did. But his history lesson, it wasn't just a history lesson. But he wasn't just telling them about Israel. He was telling them about God and Israel. See, the star of Stephen's story isn't the nation of Israel. 
the star of Stephen's story is God. God is mentioned in one way or another around 40 times in Stephen's history lesson. And a little over 40 in the entire chapter as Stephen talks. Right? What Stephen is doing is he is reminding them of all that God had done for Israel. He is pointing them to the God who had done everything and made what they were possible. And I want us to to kind of look through this to see how God was the star, because that is significant. And and he said in verse 2, And brethren and fathers, listen, the God of glory appeared to our father Abraham when he was in Mesopotamia before he dwelt at Haran. And he said to him, Get out of your country and from your relatives and come to a land that I will show you. Then he came to the land of the Chaldeans and dwelt in Haran. And from there, when his father was dead, he moved on his own land, which God in which you now dwell. Right? So, right? so, while Abraham is the father of their nation, it was God who chose Abraham. It was God who called Abraham. And it was God who promised Abraham something. And God gave him no inheritance in it, not even enough to set a foot on it. But when Abraham had no child, he promised to give it to him for a possession and to his descendants after him. But God spoke in this way, that his descendants would dwell in a foreign land, and they would bring them into bondage and oppress them for 400 years. And the nation to whom they will be in bondage, I will judge, says God, and after that they shall come out and serve me in this place. So God called Abraham. God promised to give the descendants of Abraham this land. Uh, Also in here is implied that God gave Abraham a son. And then God gave Abraham the covenant of circumcision. Then he gave him the covenant of circumcision. And so Abraham begat Isaac and circumcised him on the eighth day. And Isaac begat Jacob and Jacob begat the twelve patriarchs. And the patriarchs becoming envious. Oh, we'll get ahead and get ahead. But it was God who gave the covenant of circumcision. Do you see how he's... Making sure they see that God is the star of it all. It's all about what God has done. It was was God who sent Joseph to Egypt. The patriarchs became envious and sold Joseph into Egypt, but God was with him. See, even in that, God was there. Why? Because God was going to do something through Joseph in Egypt. And God delivered him out of all of his troubles and gave him favor and wisdom in the presence of Pharaoh, the king of Egypt, and made him governor over Egypt and all of his house. Right? See, it was God who sent Joseph to Egypt. It was God who protected Joseph in Egypt. And it was God who made Joseph great in Egypt for a purpose. Now, a great famine or a famine in great trouble came over the land of Egypt and Canaan. And our fathers found no sustenance. But when Jacob heard there was grain in Egypt, he sent our fathers first. And the second time, Joseph was made known to his brothers, and Joseph's family became known to the Pharaoh. And then Joseph sent and called his father and Jacob and all his relatives, 75 people. And so Jacob went down to Egypt, and he died, and he and our fathers. And he was carried back to Shechem and laid in the tomb that Abraham bought for a sum of money from the sons of Hamor, the father of Shechem. So, here's what God's doing. Calls a people, promises a people, gives a covenant with the people, sends somebody into the greatest Nation in the world promotes him to a place of great honor and great power and then sends a small group of people, just a handful, sends them into the land for a reason. It says in verse 17, but when the time of the promise drew near, when God had sworn to Abraham, the people grew and multiplied in Egypt. But there was a famine in the rest of the world. But in Egypt, there was plenty because of Joseph's wisdom, whom God had sent there. And now the people of Israel were in this place. They were protected and they thrived and they grew. God made them prosper. God had made them grow. At this time, Moses was born and was, oh, I just skipped a verse. Until another king arose who did not know Joseph. This man dealt treacherously with our people and oppressed our forefathers, making them expose their babies so they might not live. So they're growing, they're prospering to the point that Pharaoh is scared that they might turn on him and win. So he's trying to kill off all of the male children. But God is not passive. God is not reacting. God is actively doing something to protect his people. God raises up Moses. And at that time, Moses was born and was well-pleasing to God. And he was brought up in his father's house for three months. And when he was set out, Pharaoh's daughter took him in and brought him 
unto her own son, brought up as her own son. And Moses was learned in all the wisdom of the Egyptians and mighty in words and deeds. So God not only delivers them into Egypt, protects them as they grow, brings up a deliverer, but he makes sure that this deliverer is raised in the house of Pharaoh. So that he knows everything about Egyptian culture and he is able to speak knowledgeably on all of these things. God is raising up someone to deliver his people out and take them into the promised land. Now it says when he was 40 years old, it came into his heart to visit his brethren, the children of Israel. And seeing one of them suffer wrong, he defended and avenged him who was oppressed and struck down the Egyptian. For he supposed that his brethren would have understood that God delivered him, that God would deliver them by his hand, but they did not understand. And the next day appeared to two of them who were fighting and tried to reconcile them, saying, Man, you are brethren. Why do you wrong one another? But he who did wrong to his neighbor pushed him away, saying, Who made you a ruler and a judge over us? Do you want to kill us as you did the Egyptian yesterday? Then... This saying, Moses fled and became a dweller in the land of Midian where he had two sons. And again, God did this. God was preparing Moses. Sent him out and for 40 years, Moses was in the desert tending the sheep. But God was not through with him. God was not giving up on the people. It says in verse 30 that when 40 years had passed. Now keep in mind, Moses at this point, 80 years old. And we'll talk about that in a few weeks. Eighty years old, the angel of the Lord appeared to him in a flame of fire in a bush in the wilderness at Mount Sinai. And when Moses saw it, he marveled at the sight and drew near to observe. And the voice of the Lord came to him, saying, I am the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob. And Moses trembled, did not look. Then the Lord said to him, Take your sandals off your feet for the place where you're standing. It's holy ground. So here Moses is being called by God to go into the land. And he's going to be sent back to Pharaoh to deliver the people because God knew what was going on. I have surely seen the oppression of my people who are in Egypt. I have heard their groaning and have come down to deliver them. And now I will send you to Egypt. God was sending. God had known about their problems, knew what was going on and was sending someone that he would work through to deliver them. And this Moses, whom they had rejected, saying, Who made you a ruler and a judge, is the one God sent to be a ruler and a deliverer by the hand of the angel, who he prepared, uh, prepared to, he appeared to him at the bush. And he brought them out after he had shown wonders and signs in the land of Egypt and the Red Sea and the wilderness for 40 years. Uh, God delivered them. And it just goes into one verse, but we know that the Exodus story of the plagues and all the things that happened there. And all of the plagues and all that happened, it was God. Showing his great power. None of that happened because of Moses' eloquence. None of that happened because Moses was good. None of that happened because Israel was especially good. It all happened by the great power of Almighty God. He delivered them. And then Moses promised, God told Moses that he would raise up another prophet like to him that would be Jesus, ultimately, this is the Moses who said to the children of Israel, the Lord, your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from your brethren. Him shall you hear. This was he who was in the congregation of the wilderness with the angel who spoke to him on Mount Sinai and with our fathers, the one who received the living oracles to us, whom our fathers would not obey, but rejected in their hearts. They turned back to Egypt, saying to Aaron, make us gods to go before us. For this Moses who brought us out of the land of Egypt, we do not know what's become of him. And they made a calf in those days and offered sacrifices to the idols and rejoiced in the works of their hands. And then God turned and gave them up to worship the host of heaven as it is written in the book of the prophets. Did you offer me slaughtered animals and sacrifices during the 40 years, O house of Israel? You also took up the tabernacle of Moloch, the star god of Rephidim, images you made to worship, and I will carry you away into Babylon. Right, so here we see God put up with them. Why did God bring them into the promised land? Was it because they were just like perfectly devoted to God? Not by a long shot. They resisted and rejected God at every step along the way. As soon as things got hard, they were like, we wished we'd went back to Egypt. Let's just make another leader and we'll go back and be slaves rather than be free and serve a God who's only given us manna to eat every day. Right? And so they whined and they complained and they rebelled and they rejected. But God did not kill them. God did not destroy them. God mercifully put up with them to bring them into the land. 
And our fathers had this tabernacle of the witness in the wilderness, and he appointed, instructing Moses to make it according to the pattern which he had seen, which our fathers, having received it in turn, brought with Joshua into the land by the Gentiles, whom God drove out before the face of our fathers until the days of David. Right, so, again, Joshua led the people into the land, but who gave them the victory? Did they win because Joshua was a great leader? No. Did they win because Israel were mighty soldiers? No. They won because God was great and God was on their side. God fought for them. God gave them the victory. God gave them the promised land. And then God raised up David. The tabernacle was until the time of David, who found favor before God and asked to find a dwelling for the God of Jacob. David was brought up. David united the kingdom. He led it to a level of greatness that it had never known before. The, the kingdom was made stronger under David's rule than it was under any other king before him. At any other time before him. Because God gave David victory everywhere he went. But David's son Solomon built a temple. However, the Most High does not dwell in temples Made with hands, as the prophet says, heaven is my throne, the earth is my footstool. And what house will you build for me, says the Lord, or what place of my rest? He, or has my hand not made all of these things? Now, keep in mind the significance of the temple, Solomon's temple, in Jewish culture. Right? It was The temple that was there then was not Solomon's temple. Solomon's temple had been destroyed. Another temple had been rebuilt in its place. The temple that was rebuilt was smaller and not as magnificent as Solomon's temple. The people, in fact, some of them even cried when they saw it because they remembered what the old temple looked like. It was the kind of the chief, the glory of God. Uh, just the magnificence and the wonder of God was seen in the gold and the silver and the precious stones of the temple. And yet... Despite the magnificence of Solomon's temple, it was nothing compared to the greatness of God. Even the, the best thing they could build to show how great God was, was nothing compared to the greatness of their God. And now, Stephen stops the history lesson and kind of gets a little mean. He says, you, you stiff-necked and uncircumcised in heart and ears, you always resist the Holy Spirit. Just as your fathers did, so do you. Which of the prophets did your fathers not persecute? And they killed those who foretold the coming of the just one, whom you have now become betrayers and murderers, who received the law by the direction of angels and have not kept it. Now, it's important to understand what Stephen is doing here. A couple of things. First, he is bringing up the fact that God fulfilled his promise to send Jesus Christ. And that Jesus Christ came, died according to the plan, and did all that God wanted done. But at the same time, he is, he is being harsh. I mean, let's make no mistake, stiff-necked and uncircumcised was not like a way to win friends and influence people. Uh, I don't know, there's not a, really a way for uh, our culture that would come close to being called being uncircumcised in heart. It was one of the biggest insults you could ever say. To a Jewish person. Right? It would be like. The only equivalent I can think of. Is calling somebody from Oklahoma Tex. I mean just horrible horrible thing to say to somebody. But he wasn't doing it just to be offensive. That wasn't the main point. He was trying to get their attention. He was. Have you ever known somebody that said something shocking. And, and because it was shocking. You, you paid attention to what else they had to say. And it made you think. And maybe you didn't like the shocking statement they said. But the point they were making was valid. And you wouldn't have even heard it. Had it not been for a shocking statement. That's kind of what Stephen is doing here. He is making a shocking statement. Not with a purpose to offend. But to get them to think. Because look at what he accuses them of. He accuses them of being just like the people that rejected God all throughout the Old Testament. He accuses them of being just like the ones who wanted to go back into Egypt. He accuses them of being like the ones who tried to kill, hunt down and kill Elijah and the other prophets. And he's saying that they're like that because they're resisting the Holy Spirit that is pointing them to Jesus Christ. See, as the Jewish people who knew the law, who had heard and, and probably had memorized great portions of the Old Testament... Stephen's preaching of the gospel before had caused the Holy Spirit to well up within them and say, Yes, 
This is the coming Messiah. This is the promised one. But it was going to upset their apple cart. It would upset their traditions and they would lose their influence. And so they said, no. They rejected the Jesus Christ. They rejected God. They resisted the Holy Spirit's push to them. And they probably, probably did not even fully realize what they were doing. They probably never fully crossed their mind that they were rejecting God and resisting the Holy Spirit. Until Stephen speaks that word boldly, courageously, and calls their attention to it. And what he's wanting is not to offend them, but to awaken them. He wants them to know that while they claim to follow God, they aren't. That they cannot resist the Holy Spirit, reject Jesus Christ, and follow God at the same time. But look at what Jesus had said. Jesus said, he who receives you receives me, and he who receives me receives him who sent me. He who hears you hears me, and he who rejects you rejects me, and he who rejects me rejects him who sent me. But Jesus was clear that in order to go to God, we had to come through him. Right? One cannot reject Jesus Christ and yet have a relationship with God at the same time. If I want to know God, I must receive Jesus Christ. I cannot divide and have one without the other. And that's what Stephen's trying to get them to see. You, you claim to follow God, but you're rejecting God by rejecting His Son. In the end, what Stephen wants is for them to be saved. He wants them to end their resistance against the Holy Spirit and their rejection of Jesus Christ. So that they can truly know God, that they can be saved and they will live for him. That that is his goal. He is trying to help them. He wants to see them saved. And look at how they responded. When they heard these things, they were cut to the heart and they they gnashed on him their teeth. And, And like the New Living Translation, I think it says they. They shook their fists at, in rage at him. The, the message paraphrase says they became a, a riotous mob or something along those lines. But they, they were angry. They, they didn't appreciate his trying to help them. They, they didn't appreciate that he wanted them to be saved. It hacked them off to the core of their very being. And really the image you should see here is that they're yelling at him to shut up. Shut up! We're tired of that! Quit telling us about Jesus! Stop what you're saying! And here's what I'm convinced of. Had Stephen let their anger cause him to stop, his story would have ended differently. Had he been afraid, had he been less devoted, had he stopped when they said stop, He probably would have lived. But look at what he did. But he, being full of the Holy Spirit, gazed into heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. And he said, look, I see the heavens opened and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. Well, that was the final straw. Now, understand again what he's doing here. When he says, I see Jesus standing at the right hand of God. What is significant about the right hand in Jewish culture? That's the place of honor. Now, who is Jesus? To them, he was a fraud that they had conspired to murder. He was someone that was stirring up trouble and upsetting their apple cart and costing them their influence. And they they had caused to be murdered as a heretic. And now Stephen says he's at the right hand of God. He's at that place of honor. He is the Messiah. He is the Christ, the Son of the living God. And He is in the place of honor belonging to the Christ, the Son of the living God. Even here, what He's doing, He's pointing them to Jesus, but He's standing for the gospel. He is standing for the fact that Jesus is the only hope and the only one there is. There's not one coming. There's nothing better to look to. He's there at the place of honor and He sees the wicked actions that are going on in your life right now. And that is the final straw. 
They cried out with a loud voice. They stopped their ears and ran at him with one accord. And they cast him out in the city and they, they stoned him. At church camp, this one of the highlights of church camp, I went and got Daniel Sweet, the youth pastor at Woodward Church, and I pushed him all the way down until I pushed him in the floor at the front and then I had some paper balls and I actually stoned him. It was pretty fun overall. It's one of the highlights of camp. But I mean, I want you to imagine stoning, right? There's some, well, there was the initial picture, pictures of that. Stoning was an awful, awful way to die. It wasn't a quick death. That is, they threw stones, bones broke, pain, agony. I mean, eyes were often knocked out, ribs were broke, arms were broke, jaws were broke. It was a a horrible horrible way to die and they are just wailing on him chunking those stones at him and and don't misunderstand he knew that they had the power to do that as he stood before the sanhedrin he knew they had the power this this wasn't a riot lynch mob out of control the sanhedrin absolutely had the right to order his death and he knew that And still, he preached Jesus, even until the very last. And as they stoned him, it says in verse 59, he was calling on God, saying, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. And then he knelt down and cried out with a loud voice, Lord, do not charge them with this sin. And when he had said this, he fell asleep. Even at the last, he was concerned about their salvation. Now, the question that burns in my mind is why? Why would he not shut up? Because as I said, I have no doubts that Stephen could have spared his life had he stopped just before saying he saw Jesus standing at the right hand of God. Why did Stephen keep going? In the end, Stephen kept going because of all that God had done. All that God had done for Israel demanded he keep going. All that God had done through Jesus Christ demanded he kept going. All that God had done in his life Personally, it demanded that he keep going. In the end, Stephen was more like a Spartan than he was looking for somebody, looking for a way to have an easy life that ended in a peaceful death. More important than anything else was courage and honor, devotion to Jesus. But it wasn't a A half-hearted devotion to Jesus. It wasn't a convenient devotion to Jesus. It was a full-blown, Jesus is it, devotion to Jesus. You know, one of the most important questions we'll ever answer in our lives is what will be of ultimate value to us? What is most important? Live or die, this is the center of it all. Because whatever we put at the center of it all, it will determine the overall course of our lives. And there are all kinds of things we could put at the center. Right? A house, a car, a job, a hobby, a position, money, sports, family, comfort, TV, sex, possessions, food, pleasure, power. And we could easily put any of these. And we probably, we, we could look up there and we know people that have any of those things at the center of their lives. And, and don't get me wrong, these things aren't bad. None of those things are bad, inherently. Right? That's not the issue. The issue is what is center. Now, we could also put Jesus at center, at that place of ultimate value in our lives. Now, which one of those or anything else we pick It will set the course for our lives. It will determine our values. It will determine our priorities. It will determine our attitudes and our actions. The way we spend our time and our money. The way we use our talents. And out of all of the things up there. 
there is really only one thing that is worthy of ultimate devotion. That is Jesus. Jesus is the only thing on that list that is worthy of being at that place of ultimate value in our lives. And it's not that the other things are bad. It's just he is so much better that it cannot even be compared. But we have to understand, if we put Jesus in that place of ultimate value in our lives and we keep him there, it'll cost us something. Not, I mean, it did Stephen. It, it cost Stephen his life. It cost all 12 of the apostles, except for John, their lives. They all died as martyrs. The early church, many, hundreds, thousands in the early church were martyred because of their devotion to Jesus. Today, there will be Christians martyred around the world simply because of their devotion to Jesus. Now, let's be honest though. It's probably not going to cost us the ultimate sacrifice in this life. I mean, not, not in America. I mean, America may be turning to a kind of a godless nation or away from Christian values. But there's still no killing us in the streets and getting away with it yet. So that's not happened. But make no mistake, if we put Jesus at that place of ultimate value and we keep him there, it'll cost us. And, and it may, it'll cost us sinful pleasures for sure. Right? Can't live for Jesus and live to fulfill my sinful pleasures. It'll cost me selfish living. I mean, the gospel was all about sacrifice. Jesus set the example of sacrifice by dying in our place, and he calls on us to follow that example. So selfish living, it'll, it'll cost us that. It, it may cost us certain relationships. Right? The Bible is clear that there are certain kinds of relationships we as believers aren't supposed to have. Right? And so Jesus is ultimate. I'll let those relationships go. Promotions. I had a friend once that was offered a major promotion at his job, but he was told in order to keep that promotion... He'd have to quit going to church on Sunday. And he would, it was going to have to kind of, because the job required doing some things that were sort of under the counter and not legal. And that he would have to let his Christian values go. And those were the terms that were used. Cost him his job. Toys. Right? I mean, there are any number of things that we may have to give up so that we can be faithful and, and giving and not selfish. Sinful reactions. Right? I mean, isn't it easy when we get mad to just launch back? I mean, that for most of us, well, most for me, that's my natural reaction. For many of you, you also know that's your natural reaction. Right? Guess what? Followers of Christ, we're supposed to give that up. Cost us that. Our comfort zones. Nobody that followed Jesus faithfully ever lived well within their comfort zones. They all had to do things that were well beyond their comfort zones. Any number of things. There are any number of things that it may cost us to follow Jesus, to make him that place of ultimate value. And that's why it requires a costly devotion. But, and this is the main idea for the message, Jesus is worthy of a costly devotion. Jesus is worthy of a costly devotion. We say, well, why? Why is, is Jesus so worthy of everything? I mean, remember the, the passage I read at the beginning of church, church at Smyrna in Revelation 2. Jesus told them, you're going to suffer, die. Be faithful unto death. He, he expects that we will give him that level of devotion. I mean, let's make no mistake. Jesus knows he is worthy of a costly devotion. But he, he has no identity crisis at all. No inferiority complex. He knows he is worthy of a costly devotion. But, but we don't always know. So why? Well, there's two reasons, and we're going to have to go quickly. But first, turn to Revelation chapter 4. I'm going to show you one. It's page 951. And, and what I want us to see here is that Jesus is inherently worthy of a costly devotion. But he is just, just by his being, 
regardless of anything else, he's worthy of this. Now, Revelation 4 talks about John getting to see the throne room of heaven. And look at what he says in verse 3. Sees a, verse 2, he sees a throne in heaven. One who was on it, like jasper and sardis stone, the appearance, there was a rainbow around the throne, and the appearance of the emerald. And around the throne were 24 thrones, and on the thrones I saw 24 elders sitting clothed in white robes, and had crowns of pure gold on their head. Now, I had several commentaries try to explain, like, the rubies and the stones and things like that, and what they meant and what they must have looked like in verse 3. But I'll give you the panhandle paraphrase of it. It was a pretty awesome sight to behold. I mean, that's kind of all that John is trying to get across was it was an amazing thing. Right, here's a, some artist's rendition of this scene. This is a Revelation Illustrated uh, and there's the throne in the center with all of the lightning and the thunderings. But you can just imagine what that was like. And it says, um, verse 5, And from the throne proceeded lightnings and thunderings and voices, and seven lamps of fire were burning the throne and the, and the seven spirits of God. Before the throne there was a sea, like, a sea of glass like crystal. In the midst of the throne around the throne were four living creatures full of eyes front and back. Now, we'll stop there. But think about the, the lightning and the thundering that was going forth. Right, It was just powerful and booming, right? like an Oklahoma thunderstorm, if you've been in one of those, just the lightning and the thundering. But it's coming out of the throne, and the picture is that the one on the throne is controlling it. Can you imagine the power of that one sitting on the throne? Now it describes these creatures that are sitting there. They, four living creatures, full of eyes in front and back. The first living creature was like a lion, the second living creature like a calf, the third living creature had the face of a man, the fourth living creature was like a flying eagle. It's four living creatures having six wings were full of eyes around and within. And they do not cease day and night crying. Holy, holy, holy. Lord God Almighty, he who was and is to come. Now, I'm not good with picturing those things, but you can see kind of that picture of there up there. The, the lion, the bull, the man and the eagle. Now, can you imagine seeing something like that? I don't know how big they were, but something with a lion's head, wings and eyes all over it. I mean, what would we do if we were like, be bopping through the woods and suddenly we come across something like that. Probably we'd stroke out in fear, right? I mean, we would just, it would be a terrifying concept to see that thing. And I'm guessing, now this is just a guess, so you can disagree, but I'm guessing they're probably not small. I'm guessing they're pretty big. Right? At least man-sized, if not bigger. But notice, those things as terrifying and as awesome as they are to behold, what do they do? They worship the one on the throne. Right? The one on the throne controls the storms and the thunder. The one on the, on the throne is so great that the amazing creatures that would terrify us, they bow before him and they worship him. Right? I mean, Jesus is just inherently worthy of our worship. Right? Have you ever met someone that just had just something? Right? And, and you would just, I mean, you, you, you met them and just instantly you were like, wow. They're amazing. We had a, a, a brigade commander in Germany. His name was Colonel Banks, Colonel Jimmy Banks from Oklahoma. And he was a soldier, soldier, right? I mean, he had joined as a private in Vietnam and had come up through the ranks to the point that he was a, a full bird colonel about to retire when I was in there. He had done it all and had seen it all, had jumped out of it all. I mean, he was something. And because we knew what he was like, and we knew what he had done, I mean, he would talk, and we would just, because he would, like, he wouldn't use a microphone, because it messed up his southern drawl, he would say. And so, he would get rid of the microphone and just talk, and we would kneel down at the front so the others could see him, and, and we would just be silent, to, just to catch on his every word. There was just something about Colonel Banks that we would have followed him anywhere. You take that and multiply it by a gazillion. And that's what Jesus is like. Just seeing him changed people's lives. Just knowing him made them different than they were before. He is inherently worthy of a costly devotion. And anyone that knows him truly knows that honestly. There is just something about that name. That makes us willing to follow him anywhere. But not only is he inherently worthy of our worship and, our, and that costly devotion. He is, 
He has done something to demonstrate that, we, that He is worthy. In the book of Romans, it tells us this. But God demonstrates His own love toward us, that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Much more than having been justified by His blood, we shall be saved from wrath through Him. And I'm going to have to skim my notes, so I'm not going to go look at them because I'll take too long. The Bible teaches that we were all sinners. Right? But all of us have fallen short of God's glorious standard. Romans 3.23. All of sin fallen short of the glory of God. Now, God's standard, of course, is the Ten Commandments. That is God's absolute standard for righteousness. And if we were to look at Romans, say, 3, 19 through 21, we would see that the more we look at, the, at the God's law, the more we realized we have not kept it. And the idea of miss the mark is like a, well, it's a marksmanship turn. Like you shoot at the bullseye, but you miss. Right? You may just miss a little bit, but if you missed, you still didn't hit the bullseye. So the bullseye is perfectly keeping all Ten Commandments perfectly for all of our lives. Now we may have done our best. But at some point we've all missed that mark. Right? And just to give you an example. Right? The Bible says in the, in the Ten Commandments. It says you shall not commit murder. Now we would look at that and think. Well I've never killed anybody. Good to go. But Jesus takes that and he messes with it. And he says. Well if you've hated somebody without cause. Guess what? If you've despised somebody in your heart. Guess what? If you've been angry without cause at somebody, guess what? Right? You violated the spirit of the law. Right? So like if you didn't get enough sleep last night, and this morning while you were getting ready, your kids were a little too loud, a little too cheerful, and you said, shut up! Guess what? You broke the law. And you're guilty now. You got mad at that person that pulled out in front of you. Lay on the horn! Oh, guess what? You broke the law and you're guilty now. You counted the items of that dude in front of you in the, in the checkout lane. And he had 40 items. And you thought about how stupid he was and not be able to count to 40. Guess what? You broke the law. And if we were to look at all ten commandments and look at the spirit and the letter, we'd find the same thing. We've broken the law. And because we've broken the law, we're guilty. And because we're guilty, we are the fit objects of God's wrath. We deserve the wages of sin, right? It's not that, that God gives us an unjust punishment. We deserve the wrath of God because of our sins against God. And since we have sinned against God, we deserve His wrath that's described in the Bible. Right, and, and we don't have time, but I'm sure we're all familiar with the idea of hell. Eternal conscious torment. That is the wages of our sin. That is what we justly deserve because of our violations of God's law. But Jesus came to do something to make it so that we would not have to face that. He, he lived a perfect life. And He did everything just like God wanted him to do. His anger was a righteous anger. His everything was exactly the way it was supposed to be done. And even though he was innocent, he died a, a sinner's death. And on that cross, he absorbed all the wrath of God against all of our sin. And he died. And he rose again to prove that he had just taken our sin. That He was the Son of God. And through Him, it's told, we have been justified. Right? And the idea of justified is that God declares us not guilty. Right? When we repent of our sins and believe in Jesus Christ, God takes our sin and our guilt off of us and he puts it on the cross and he takes the righteousness of Christ and he puts it in our account. Now, this isn't God saying that we were not that guilty. No, no, we're, we're definitely very, very guilty. But it's God saying, I'll account Jesus' righteousness to you because of your faith in him. And it, it's as though we have not sinned. 
But as a believer in Jesus Christ being justified, you are as righteous through Christ as though you had fully kept the law. And since you have fully kept the law and that righteousness is yours, you will be saved from the wrath to come. And a believer in Jesus Christ will never face hell. A believer in Jesus Christ will never suffer the wrath to come. They are fully, finally, forever free of that. See, if you're a believer in Jesus Christ, Jesus took hell for you so that you could go to heaven. He took all of your sin and He took all of your punishment. And now God isn't going to forgive you in Christ and then turn around and punish you anyway. Can't do that. God is just. So we have been saved from the wrath to come. Now, if tonight somebody your house caught on fire, somebody ran in, kicked the door down, and drug you and your entire family out to safety, would you be like, thanks, and go on about your life and never think about them again? Would they not become somebody significant in your life? Of course they would. How much more the one that ran into the fires of hell and took them in our place and carried us out so that we would not die? How much more does he deserve that place of ultimate devotion? Does he deserve the costly sacrifice? I mean, I can't... I can't imagine that we could understand and believe what the Bible says about hell. Understand that Jesus took that for us. And then be nonchalant about our relationship with Him. I mean, I can, I can kind of wrap my mind around not getting the inherent worthiness of Christ. So much of that is word pictures that we have to try to imagine. And, and, and that can be hard. But the actual acts He's done on our behalf that we claim to believe and be central to our lives. If we really believe He did that, how can we be apathetic, unconcerned, nonchalant toward Him? Surely that should motivate it. At least a desire to give Him everything. To love Him with all we've got and with all that we are. To do anything that He wants us to do. My initial question in the sermon was, what would you be willing to die for? Well, that's a good question. Let me ask you What's perhaps a more relevant question? What are you willing to live for? I don't doubt that if someone held a gun to our heads and said, Deny Jesus, most, if not all, that professed Christ would not deny him. But take the gun out, and just tomorrow. When there is no gun to our heads, there is just the world before us. What are we going to live for? Will we live for Him in such a way that demonstrates we understand He is worthy of a costly devotion? Not will we die in a blaze of glory... But will we spend our lives daily, moment by moment, for the glory of God and for the furtherance of the gospel? Are we willing to live for Jesus in such a way that it transforms our lives, our priorities, our attitudes, our thoughts, and the way we spend our time and our money? And perhaps the biggest question is, do we even want to live for Jesus like that? Do we want to make Him Lord over all? Do we want Him to be Lord over our finances and our time and our attitude and just everything? Or do we just want Him to save us from the fire 
help us in need, and leave us alone. And here is the awful truth. I wrestle with it every day of my life. I mean, it would be easy for me to say, you guys ought to do this and you ought to do that. And but the reality is, I wrestle with being, letting my devotion to Jesus cost me things. Not necessarily sinful things. My comfort. My toys. My time. My attitudes. I mean, just between us. I kind of like thinking hateful thoughts about the people in line that can't count. It helps me pass the time and feel better about it. I, I, I like some of my sinful, selfish attitudes. The thought of nailing those to the cross and leaving them there. Man, that sounds pretty hard. Do we want to live for Jesus in that way? Let's stand.